Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Tata Thiagarajan. She is the founder and chief scientist of Sapien Labs. They are based in Washington, D.C., and the idea behind Sapien Labs is that it's a nonprofit and they have the mission of taking brain diversity seriously. So, uh, as you may know, most research in psychology and neuroscience treats the brain as a kind of monolithic entity, as if every brain were the same. But we know that's not true. And if you listen to, for example, my conversation with Elizabeth Ricker, this is something that we talk about a lot. Um, But there are important differences in the brain, not only between individuals, but within the same individual from day to day. We also know that psychology and neuroscience, to say the least, have historically focused on a skewed sample of mostly white, mostly American, mostly undergraduate participants. So Tara's goal with Sapien Labs is to truly account for what it means to look at differences in brains among all people on the planet, or at least, you know, a much closer version of that. So one of their in-progress projects, which we talk about, is the Human Brain Diversity Project. And over the next five years, the idea is that they'll build, and this is a quote from their their website, build an open database of 40,000 individuals across four countries and continents consisting of EEG recordings along with extensive information about demographics, lifestyle, technology use, diet, cognitive and mental health aspects. So one of their papers, uh, which uh, I found really interesting, it was published this year in 2021, in Nature Scientific Reports, showed uh, that basically they were looking at the effect of what they call stimulus poverty on brain physiology. And so the basic finding was that they showed that the different stimuli that people encounter on an average day as they go about their business, from their phone use to how far they travel from home to what they read and beyond correlate with different physiological signatures in the brain as measured by EEG. So we talk about that a little bit towards the end of the conversation. But uh, overall, I find uh, Tata's projects, as well as her overall story and you know the, the sort of general thrust of Sapien Labs, very fascinating. And so I'm excited to see how those projects continue to develop in the coming years. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. She's a very fascinating and accomplished individual. So without any further ado, here is Tara Diagarajan. The first thing I, I usually like to ask is, where did you grow up? I grew up in India. In Chennai, it used to be called Madras. It's on the southeast coast. Yeah, cool. And what, what was your family like there? What did your What did your parents do? My parents are, um, so my mother is American um, and she is an art historian, uh, runs a sort of cultural uh, living arts museum. And my father is uh, Indian. He is, he was, he's no more. He passed away some years ago, but uh, he is, uh, he was uh, in banking, in, in the banking industry. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so how did you, uh, uh, I guess, yeah. So how did you get interested in mathematics, which I know you studied in, in undergraduate? Where did that sort of come from? So, um, you know, I think it was, I, I, and you'll find as I, as you ask me all these questions that a number of these are um, maybe circumstantial decisions uh, more than, you know, a premeditated, very carefully planned path. 
Um, I did, I did math, uh, you know, I was good at math as an under, I mean, as a high school student. And so, um, and, and this is going to sound quite uh, uh, like exactly the wrong reasons to do a particular major. But when I went to college, um, you know, I had grown up in India and I went to college and I came to college for the first time in the United States. And um, I think, you know, the, the, the whole construct or the way I had approached it at that time, having grown up in India, where really education was seen more as a means to an end rather than for its own sake. And so one of the, you know, I sort of thought, okay, you know, I'm going to do science or math because that's what you were sort of um, in, in India kind of condition. There's a hierarchy, right? If you can do math and science, you do it. And then if you don't get math and science, then you can get into this economics. If you don't get it, you know, then you get into the next, uh, into humanities. So uh, there's a certain framework that you have in, the, in India that that I sort of carried through as a, as a young teenager coming to the United States. And math had the least number of major requirements. I've soon found out why. <laughs> So it actually required much fewer courses, and I managed to graduate sort of early, but it was a really poor, um, uh, it was a poor decision, I think, at the time. And, uh, you know, that's, it's been a regret that I've had that, you know, I, I was never cut out to really be a mathematician, and I may have, uh, it may have served me better to do physics. But anyway, that's, it's, it's uh, now done. Yeah, you know, it's funny in the context of what you're saying there, I, I have a feeling we could do a whole podcast just on your mom's story, an American art historian in, in India. Uh, I'm very intrigued uh, in, in terms of, of everything going on there. But uh, I guess we'll we'll set that aside for now. Um, but uh, but yeah, OK, so you, you you tried to tackle the mathematics world and you, you succeeded enough to get the degree. And I'm sure you were uh, plenty capable of, of, of what it asked. Well, I mean, I was plenty capable of doing the classes, but I think I realized toward, you know, the end of my junior year that I was no mathematician. Right. And then and, so what did you, you know, think? I, yeah. What did you what did you do with that information? What did you what did you what what was your sort of pivot then? Well, I think I started taking classes in other uh, fields. And, you know, I have to say, as as someone who, you know, I grew up in a, um, you know, my father was in sort of the, you know, the banking community, and I knew people who were all in business, and I didn't know anyone who was in science. And I know this, this probably sounds quite silly, but I didn't, uh, when I came into um, undergrad, I didn't know that scientific research was done in the universities. Um, I it, and it seems you know so obvious now, but at the time it took me two years of being there to actually find that out, and um, that there were actually labs and there was all of this stuff, and so you know by the time I sort of discovered all that, having not had the perspective and context of the U.S. Uh, you know like liberal arts education, uh, I couldn't add another major. But what I did was I took classes in lots of different things after that. Mm, yeah. And then so when when did it occur to you that neuroscience was the thing that, uh, OK, I can apply some of my mathematical knowledge. It's got a little bit more of a physics style, you know, kind of conception of, of, of what we're doing. When, when did that start to, to develop for you? Quite late, quite late. So I, I was interested. I, I think as an undergrad, I did become interested in, in you know, the brain. And, uh, you know, I took classes in a lot, lot of, you know, the molecular biology. I took, you know, classes in human evolution, things like that. And, um, you know, I was interested in that broadly, but I didn't know what specifically I wanted to do in that whole space. 
And um, it actually took me quite some time because it was really about, you know, sort of breaking a conditioning that I'd had all through my childhood where, you know, we had all been um, what we knew or what I knew and, and, you know, people I grew up with. It was um, really everybody went to business school. And uh, so I did, too, actually, after um, my undergrad, because I didn't have I hadn't done sufficient uh, like I didn't have sufficient credits in any biology area to apply at the time. And it was one of the prerequisites. And so, um, you know, I, I went to business school feeling a little sorry for myself that I had discovered all this a little bit late. And I, you know, if someone had kind of sat me down when I first arrived and said, here are all the opportunities in a liberal arts university, these are the things you can do. I might've crafted things quite differently, but uh, you know, you, you, you know, hindsight is 2020, 20, but um Undergraduate is wasted on undergraduates. <laughs> yeah, I think so. That's the saying. You know, the, there's also the saying, "Youth is wasted on the young." You don't know what you have till you start losing it. But um, I, yeah. So I went to um, uh, business school, and at the time, I was still thinking: Should I do physics? Should I do this? Should I do that? And what what do I want to do? And I can take other courses, and I'm going to try and find a way to something I really want to do. And uh, so while I was at business school, I started taking classes in physics and neuroscience. And um, really, the path to neuroscience came, um, I'd say, uh, it kind of, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a fun story to tell. So I was, uh, I took an intro to neuroscience class. And uh, the intro to neuroscience class was taught by a, a fairly new uh, assistant professor at Northwestern. And um, uh, you know, for me as a business school student to go to the um, uh, undergraduate, to take an undergraduate class, I needed a signature from him. So um, I went to his lab. I had to find him and get his signature. And, uh, you know, so I found him in his lab. His office was in the back corner of the lab. And um, it was kind of this intriguing looking place with all these the mic microscopes and, you know, wires everywhere and whatnot. And so when I went to get signature, I asked him, like, what do you do here? So he kind of showed me, you know, he said, oh, we use we take these um, slices of brain tissue that we extract from rats. And, uh, you know, we're putting them in the dish here and we're doing electrophysiology by, you know, sort of putting electrodes into these um, neurons and measuring electrical activity. And for me, that was this sort of like, and there's, it's still alive after you've taken it out of the rat and it's still doing something, even though the rat's now gone. And um, how long does it stay alive? And he said, well, some of them, we can keep it alive for many, many hours. So this was sort of really intriguing, right? Like what, how, what does that mean about the nature of, of the brain, of life in general, when you can disaggregate the pieces. And especially, I mean, you know, you could take the heart out and, you know, transplant to somebody else and so on. But when you can take pieces of brain and they're still doing something that it seems like that has quite substantially more um, implication. So that really intrigued me. And um, it sort of uh, happened that, you know, I was, I was also now, uh, I was not much, um, younger than the professor. And we started, we had started playing squash together sometimes. And um, during that time I was, you know, talking about like, you know, it's really asking him more about what he does and stuff. And, and, um, and this is uh, just, uh, is Nelson Spruston who is now at uh, Howard Hughes at Genelia Farm. 
Um, and, uh, you know, he said, so one day I asked him, I was like, can I, can I try, you know, can I do this? And he's, and he's like, let me think about it for a minute. And he's like, okay, sure. So, um, he sort of let me into his lab and, uh, I had to share a rig with a PhD student, this electrophysiology rig, and I would come at night and try to learn how to record activity from brain cells. So I did this through business school. And, um, you know, while everyone was applying to sort of the consulting firms and uh, to uh, investment banking and so on, I was sort of, you know, trying to figure out like, where do I go from here? Because, I mean, I, I certainly still don't have a degree. And, um, and Nelson was the one who said, well, if you want to apply for PhD programs, I'll write you a recommendation. And I said, I have none of the prerequisites like I'm supposed to have. And he said, don't worry about it. Just do it. And, and so that's sort of how it happened. Wow, that's amazing. God, that's so incredible. Through, through business school, through your MBA, you were working, doing nights, moonlighting in your, in your neuroscience lab. Yeah, um, yeah, so. Okay, so eventually you got into PhD program, evidently at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what was the sort of game plan? when you got there? Was it was it like, okay, I'm going to become a neuroscientist? Or did you have like, oh, I'd like to see this sort of thing happen in the future? Or oh, I'm just following cool, cool stuff that uh, I'm enjoying at the moment? What what did you think you were doing? I mean, to me, it was it was really I mean, I say I, you know, I, I it's I haven't really had a career plan so much as a quest. And I, I sort of, uh, I guess I would have, it was part of that quest of saying, you know, I'm trying to understand something about the nature of life and uh, here's a place to do it. And, you know, how I'm going to do that after this, I don't know yet, but um, it could be as a neuroscientist in a formal way or some other way. But um, I think that was just the goal in, its, in and of itself is yeah. where can you explore that? Um, and then, so at what point did you found Sapien Labs? Oh, that's a, that's a very, um, so that came so much later. Yeah. Um, Can you and draw that's a, a line very... between those or what? Is, yeah, I imagine there's lots. Yeah, of I mean, there, it's, a, it's a long, actually, it's a long story. And like I said, as, as you'll see, it's not a carefully crafted career plan because um, uh, I, I think, you know, part of my own thinking has been that it's more of a quest and how life, you know, the path that, that quest takes you down can sometimes be meandering and reach dead ends and so on. So, so I think, you know, by the time I got to the end of my PhD, at that time, I did think that I wanted to, you know, I, and I went on to do a postdoc at the NIH. Um, there were a few things that, that really, I would say, defined the trajectory in some ways. So the first thing was that, you know, the beginning of my PhD was extremely exciting when you're, you're learning so much that's new and it's a very, um, you know, like I was working in, in cellular physiology, um, you know, neurons in a dish, uh, what you call a dissociated culture. And um, while you, while there's a certain, um, I think, insight you get about the nature of cells and, um, life processes that I realized that you would, you know, that it's really hard to understand anything about the human being and the human mind from just playing with these pieces. And I think it was starting from that reductionist framework and, um, 
sort of coming to the realization at the end of uh, my PhD that, you know, the sum is, it, it's, uh, it's, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And um, I, I really wanted to, um, uh, so start understanding the system more than, you know, the cells. So that took me into um, a, a sort of very new lab again at, at the NIH for my postdoc, where I was looking at different phenomenology in, um, you know, at, at the network level. So again, I started out working with rats in a dish, but then looking at data from monkeys and and um, trying to get a sense for how does it all kind of, you know, add up together to to create, um, you know, what something what the human mind does. So that was um, so, you know, and that was great, too, because I was learning a whole new field of complex systems. And um, you know, it was a lot more sort of an intersection with physics, which I, I really loved. And um, during that time, my um, and, and this is, uh, you know, so again, a very sort of circumstantial twist. During that time, my um, my father had a stroke and um, he was he was paralyzed and uh, you know had suffered quite a bit of brain damage and so on, and um, I had to uh, you know one was caring for him until he died a couple of years later, but also it sort of left me with a he had started a nonprofit right before he'd had a stroke and then he had ended up it was in the micro lending space, and it had ended up in a bit of a you know, like some things that unraveled, uh, and I won't get into all the details of it, but long story short, um, you know, I had to solve a lot of the challenges that came with that after he passed away. And so I actually um, left, uh, after I finished my postdoc, I, I moved to India for two years to try to sort that out. And, and one of the uh, challenges with that is part of the solving of all these issues was I had to raise venture capital money uh, I converted the nonprofit into a for-profit, uh, and then we, once we did that, I had to then run the company. So, uh, so this was sort of, a, you know, a not quite what I had planned at all because at the time I was looking for faculty positions when this all happened, and and so I had, um, I spent a little time as a visiting faculty in India. Uh, and I had a very small lab, a couple of people, uh, but, you know, I was basically running this company. And, um, you know, one of the things I thought is, well, I have a different kind of platform now. And, um, you know, I've studied so far uh, all these, like from cells to, you know, moving up to networks of neurons, but what about the, the human brain itself? And one of the things we started to do within my company was set up a sort of laboratory where we were studying what, um, you know, what kind of things um, predict human outcome in these very small villages where we were lending money. And, um, and we, as part of that, we started looking at uh, the, uh, you know, cognitive metrics and things. So just to give you some context, so what this company did was it lends money to, um, people who are basically off grid. So they're not, you know, generally they're, they're not connected on, you know, they don't have any digital signature. Typically they are not very educated. So there's no resume, uh, no degrees, no nothing formal. And you're lending to, um, you know, businesses that have no records. 
at all. So you don't know, are they succeeding or not? And, and, you know, in what way and what scale and all of that. So part of the challenge there was, you know, what predicts human outcome? How do we understand the human being and, and what predicts human outcome? And part of that journey was looking at, you know, how do we assess uh, human beings and what are assessments for human beings? Now, one of the, um, uh, so, one, one of my PhD students, when I was working at this lab, which is at NCBS, or, or when I had a small lab at NCBS in, in Bangalore, she, um, uh, she joined me as a data scientist. So she was also a computational neuroscientist. She got her PhD in computational neuroscience. And um, you know, she was saying, let's, why don't we measure brain activity as part of our, you know, and I said, look, we're a, we're a regulated, financial services company uh, where we get into quite some <laughs> quite a bit of uh, trouble here if we start uh, going out there measuring EEG and you know brain activity from folks. But you know so we but you know we kind of uh, so what happened was we were doing these different um, cognitive um, uh, batteries and we found these really massive differences between people who lived in very rural, um, areas that didn't have, you know, access to the edu kind of education and, and technology that modern life um, uh, brings. And so, you know, we were really curious. And so I said, okay, you know, Daniel, let's get an EEG device. She found these emotive devices, which at the time they were fairly new and just come out and they were very inexpensive compared to, um, uh, um, you know, the, the more, uh, hospital or research grade EEGs and so on. And so it's like, you know, it's like $750. Let's buy one. Let's just go try it out. So we just did it on our, on our own and we were not new to EEG entirely. So hadn't done that. And please, you know, stop me anywhere. Um, we hadn't done that at all before. So we were totally naive to that field. And, um, uh, you know, we didn't know the device would be good or bad or whatever, but, you know, it was fun. So we bought the headset. We, we went out to a remote village and we, you know, rounded up like seven or eight, 10 people, recorded their brain activity and, uh, and then recorded from, you know, ourselves and friends and family and so on. And, uh, you know, up to that point, I had been working with multi-electrode array data from monkeys from ECOG, which had been, we had had, we had a collaboration with, you know, folks at Johns Hopkins for, so this is ECOG is, um, uh, electrode arrays placed on the, on the, uh, uh, surface of the brain. So they, when you, you're, uh, you know, you're having uh, surgery. So we had been working with all this and we developed a lot of, you know, different algorithms and ways to analyze these time series, which are basically the same sort of, um, thing is EEG, but obviously there's difference in the signal. So Daniel ran some of those on the data that we collected. And what we saw was actually kind of shocking, which is that there were the, you know, people in these rural areas were the sort of dynamics of the EEG were very different from, you know, our friends and family group. And uh, so we were like, how can that be? Because you don't see such broad separations in biology. Most of the time people are like, is it really a significant difference or not? And um, that sort of thing. But this was really stark. And so our first thing was maybe it's, um, uh, you know, maybe you know, in South India where we did this, people put coconut oil in their hair in the um, 
And we thought maybe it's the coconut oil is like obstructing the, the electro you know, sensor. And so you're just getting totally different readings with that. But the other thing was that if it's real, this is this is significant because what it's telling us is that there is um, there's not uh, that we are quite you know different as human beings, and that potentially there is a divergence across um, you know humanity on different dimensions of, of physiology, and why that what would drive that, what the implications of that are. I think. Um, if it's true, it would, you know, I thought it was it was very significant for how we understand who we are and where we're going as a society. So that was really the impetus for Sapien Labs. So it's a long story, of, um, uh, but that's how um, Sapien Labs was founded. Was we needed a home to actually verify if we had, we had stumbled on something that was real and significant. And you know, you can't uh, obviously you need proper protocols you need you know to make sure that it's not the coconut oil you need controls you need uh you need an irb approval you need all of that in place in order to um do this now i was not part of a university i was still in the you know running the company full time so uh you know the easiest way to do that was to establish a nonprofit that could be a home for the project so that's that's how sapien labs began that is absolutely incredible. I love all that, and it answers a lot of questions that I was going to uh, to, to probe into. Um, so thanks for all that. Uh, so one thing, uh, so you've got a bunch of different projects going on, uh, and I'll I'll give a summary of of you know some of what's publicly available on your website uh, in the intro to the show. But one of the things is the Human Brain Diversity Project. Um, mm-hmm. And just to pull a quote from your website, with six out of seven billion people living outside the U.S. and Western Europe, and only thirteen percent of adults being college educated, current research does not represent the vast majority of humanity. Sort of getting at what you're what you're saying with these these massive differences in just basic brain physiology. So mm-hmm. um, you know that's you kind of described the 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 premise of of of, of this work and and what it's what's going towards. I, I'm wondering if there is something. Yeah, is there is there something you, you can say that oh I'd like to achieve this I'd like to work in this direction. What what do you see as the sort of long term. Uh, you know, goal of, of the, these sort of projects and this sort of, this sort of research? I think there are many goals. So I'm going to maybe tell you some of them. So one of, you know, so I'll, I'll just uh, preface that by saying, you know, our first project, so Sapien Labs first two, three years was basically all about just seeing if we were onto something. So, you know, and that, uh, those results are now published. And, uh, you know, what we do see is really that, these changes in one dimension that drives change in the human brain or differences among us is your um, your stimulus consumption. So which, uh, you know, we think about the body consuming, uh, you know, uh, food and nutrients for its physical growth, but the brain, you know, develops after birth and consumes stimulus for its growth. And what we what we real you know, what we were um, able to show in that first uh, set of research was that, you know, aspects of physiology change um, systematically 
as uh, stimulus consumption changes. And this different stimulus, like for example, when you make that tran- you know, the transition from no cell phone to having a or to smartphone, the transition to smartphone, and how much you use smartphone data, uh, you know, is is corresponds with a big change in certain features in the brain physiology, really like called the alpha oscillation. And we still don't know fully exactly what that oscillation is doing and how and all of that, but we do know that you're seeing a big jump that happens with, uh, you know, corresponding to cell phone, um, smartphone usage and data usage. Um, You know, and similarly, education has a big impact on the complexity of the brain signal. And some of these have some implications for for different kinds of cognitive um, outcomes. So um, one one aspect that uh, you know, so so uh, before I, I go into specific goals, I think one of the larger goals is really to to um, say that we need to change the paradigm of how we've been studying the brain. And one of the the you know the central paradigm that has persisted or dominated over the last decades has been this idea that there is a prototypical brain, the brain, we're going to map the connectome. Um, You know, uh, we're going to uh, characterize the brain. And I think that this is, uh, what we've seen is that there's there's a lot of diversity among individuals, you know, not just at at every level. And even if, and, and the evidence has been building up for, you know, or a long time now. So if you go back to, for example, you know, the papers written by Wilder Penfield, um, you know, he was a neurosurgeon, uh, I believe it was the 30s, 40s and the 40s, who did these, uh, you know, um, he's the one sort of who drew the homunculus, if you're familiar with that, which shows where each part of the body is represented in the brain. But in the paper where he describes that, you know, he's done stimulus experiments in different people. And while he says that this is kind of roughly where a lot of people are, everybody, you know, there's differences, people who I've done surgery on once. And then again, after a few years, the place that's representing different parts of the body is moved uh, is one. And the second thing is that, um, he's found people as diverse as like, you know, we know that uh, your control of the body is contralateral in your brain. And he's found people where it's ipsilateral, uh, not many, one out of a hundred, but still, uh, you know, that still, uh, um, means it exists. And so I think a lot of this evidence has come from neurosurgery that there's massive diversity in how the brain wires up over, over the lifespan. And so, um, you know, and and the differences may have, you know, some of the differences may not really have implications for your mental health or your cognitive abilities or anything, but many of them might can. And um, really, I think a big goal of this project is to change the, it's sort of invert the framework and to say, rather than trying to find what's common among us by sort of averaging away differences and kind of finding what's in the middle, um, because the diversity is so huge, that it's not really like there's one centralizing tendency. So when it's so um, widespread, we need to start looking at what that diversity looks like. So rather than reporting what's the average, we need to report what's the variability. We need to report on, you know, what are the dimensions of variability essentially, and what do they mean? So I think that's, that's the broad framing is to say we can understand ourselves only if we do that because we are so diverse. And so I think, Part of the goal there is to 
you know, set a course of um, investigation that takes into that that is focused on the diversity, and uh, you know, so so that we um, can better understand us, ourselves as human beings. But within that, some of the goals, for example, you know, dimensions we know uh, now that you know, stimulus, um, you know, stimulus consumption is a big factor for. Um, the, the development of the brain and its cognitive uh, capability. Uh, how can we then um, understand what kind of things will accelerate that trajectory for like developing countries where resources are very um, scarce? And how do you, how can you put in place policies and interventions that can you know, move the needle. And I, I call this sort of a brain first approach to development, essentially. Like, how do you enhance the um, the cognitive capability of the, of the human being uh, by changing, you know, by uh, making changes to the stimulus environment and saying that when you do that, other, other um, uh, the other benefits that one looks for in development will follow. Wow, that is uh, that's so cool, and I guess it makes me think that uh, well, it'll be really fun to read about that in your Nobel acceptance speech uh, twenty years from now when oh, you've boy. solved the the heterogeneity of human brain diversity. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that there's a solution. <laughs> I don't know that there's a solution, and if anything, it seems to just be accelerating, and yeah. it's more you know sort of how do we get a handle on it as yeah. society that so we can you know keep it from going bad directions. Well, um, this has been super interesting to hear about, and I want to be respectful of your time, so I'll let you go actually work on the stuff that you're uh, talking about now. Um, but uh, Tara, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk today. Thank you, Cody. That was my conversation with Tara Thiagarajan. I hope you enjoyed. If you did, please consider subscribing to Cognitive Evolution through whichever platform you may be listening. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I will be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.